This is episode number 12 with Denny DeToro. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Denny DeToro is a six-time Paralympian and two-time Paralympic medalist in the sports of wheelchair tennis and table tennis. Denny is a paraplegic due to an incident that happened to her at a school swimming carnival as a young teenager. She is such a beautiful soul. You'll have heard me discussing in episode number one with Katrina Webb and episode seven with Liesl Tesh that I'm deeply connected to and inspired by women who are taking life by the horns and dominating and inspiring all humans on their journey. Denny is just another amazing example of this. You'll finish this episode inspired by her outlook on life and her passion to give back and you'll no doubt be feeling connected to Denny like you've known her forever. Denny DeToro, you legend, welcome to Your Life of Impact. Oh, Robbo, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here and so awesome to be chatting with you today. And I'll tell you what, it makes sense that we start this conversation talking about gratitude because the last time that I saw you was a few weeks ago here in Sydney and we sat through a presentation from uh, Dr. Kerry Howes on, it was called the Introduction on the Practice of Gratitude. So I'm grateful that you can uh, join us today. <laughs> Oh, how sterling was that? You know, like um, I know you practice this on a daily basis and so do I. And often I felt like a complete freak as an athlete in an elite sporting context feeling like this. And so meeting you made me feel like less of a freak, I have to say. It was bloody awesome. And thank you so much for that opportunity. We can be grateful freaks together. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. I love to see. Uh, I'm actually, uh, as you know, interviewing Kerry on the podcast soon. And you've got the, the magic headphones that are getting sent around that you'll pass on to Kerry for our Skype chats. Yeah. And, and uh, it's exciting to see. And you'd be excited. You've been in sport longer than I have. But to see these uh, studies on gratitude practices coming into high performance sport. Oh, you know, it makes a difference, doesn't it? Like, um, because elite sport's really difficult. You have to, there has to be a, a, quite a degree of selfishness about it. Like you have to be incredibly consumed and diligent and um, the level of attention and time paid to this particular craft to be the best in the world is extreme. Like most people looking at it, um, it's just too much for most people. And I can't say how often I've had friends just say, "What? like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, why, why do you keep doing this to yourself? But when you're, when you're working that hard to perfect a craft in a way that is respectful to your own ability and to the um, support that you've see, received around you, it's really um, challenging to just not be sometimes a bit of an asshole and or he's perceived to be a bit of an asshole but um it's just you just trying to get your job done and do it in a way that is so 24 7 that there's not a lot of room for anything else so for me the only thing that's kept me from um being 
alone and not having any friends <laughs> is um, being really mindful that the only reason I'm able to do this on any sort of level is because other people support, allow, encourage, um, provide various services and time and love and care that um, help me reach for the best in myself. So, Gratitude is always a big one um, as an athlete, but also certainly as an athlete with a disability who, you know, at the age of 13 had an accident and from that get-go really appreciating on a whole other level that there's gratitude for this life, that it's temporary, that you just got to make the most of it. And uh, and when you kind of bring that to an elite sporting field, it creates some pretty um, intense but really magical moments. Yeah, I think you said a good word there, which is perception because athletes do have to be very selfish and there's a lot of decisions and choices i wouldn't say sacrifices but choices that you guys have to make yeah uh, to allow yourselves to be the best the best athletes the best version of yourselves and sometimes the perception from people outside of sport can actually be that you guys are ungrateful and selfish but the the truth is that athletes are extremely grateful for all their support networks in general most athletes yeah some (laughs) most yeah (laughs) yeah and uh and, and what i love about what kerry and her team are doing is sort of exposing also, the, it's not just the, the surface level um, thank yous and people being grateful for their support, but it's the physiological benefits and the changes at a cellular level that are happening. And that for athletes, I think, is really powerful to understand. Yeah, when you can tap into that, that becomes um, a very powerful tool for, for, you know, as we know, like when you're an athlete and you're trying to perform under pressure, you can't, you can't alter so much of that stuff you're not in control of so many things you're certainly not control of the result either and the few things that you are in control of is is your mind and your ability to be grateful in that moment um and that's a very powerful tool when you can tap into it and certainly the work um that 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 Kerry is doing as long as well as the rest of that mob um, just really provides a little bit of reassurance for the rest of us that that is actually a really um, powerful tool to get athletes to start thinking about. And um, I think that's probably a great way for them to then um, think about themselves outside of being an athlete and then how we better transition athletes and things like that. I think when we kind of tap into those things, we, we become better athletes and better people. Absolutely. And better people is a great way to put it because it's uh, it's a powerful physiological benefit for everyone and not just athletes yeah now you when we were at this presentation you also spoke there about your new role with the australian paralympic committee as the athlete engagement officer tell us a bit about that yeah oh it's just so for me that's really exciting um about i don't know maybe six months before the rio paralympics kate mclaughlin who's was chef de mission of the rio paralympic team um and has has just been um uh given the role of chef for Tokyo, called me saying, you know, we just really want you to be um, captain of this Rio Paralympic team and would I would I be considering that? Um, and for me, taking that on board was um, a really oh, – such an – such a privilege, such a real honour and a real opportunity to cr- contribute to a family that's given me so much. And I was just really mindful that – you know, we haven't had captains in the past and that often that role is just this kind of one moment where they, you know, address the team and then the team goes out. And I was just really um, adamant that if I was going to take on that, that it was going to be bigger than just that kind of one moment and that um, we were going to work towards creating a, a pretty 
big collective supportive cohesive network that made sure that everyone on that team knew the importance of of them being on that team as athletes as as medalists as people reaching for the best in themselves but but that 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 wasn't just the be all and end all of of their importance and and their value and um I guess having Kurt um, be co-captain was a really beautiful way to expand on that. And we were both really mindful of wanting to create um, a really good experience for every single athlete going to that team. Because it, it, Paralympics isn't is, – it's really tough, you know. It's not – everyone kind of thinks that it's this great pinnacle, amazing thing, and it is all of those things. But it's also a really challenging space, and it's not like anything you've experienced. So it's very easy to come away from that experience um, – not feeling so great about it, not feeling so great about yourself or this whole kind of movement that you're a part of. And we were really mindful of making sure everyone had the best experience possible. And and so um, we did a lot of work leading up to Rio to kind of create as much of that with the long list of athletes so that by the time we got to the Rio Games, every athlete knew they were part of something bigger than just their own result and that, um, you know, they're everything they did was incredibly representative of the rest of us who didn't necessarily make it to that team. And um, being able to actually show that this was a really important role that was needed within our whole Paralympic movement um, allowed me to, I just guess, pitch a bit of a job to the APC saying that we need this further engagement and that someone needs to actually take that on board. And um, I guess I pitched enough to allow it to be me for a while, but I'm really happy that they genuinely see the importance of um, an athlete having an athlete engagement role and being a bit of that conduit between, you know, the athlete's experience and trying to communicate that to the APC and, and, you know, the, the broader stakeholders that I guess support athletes in their elite elite frame how how do you feel like we had kurt on the podcast too and we spoke to him about rio and uh, he spoke very highly of sharing that co-captain role with yourself and we spoke about the mob mentality talk to me a little bit about that that feeling of being you know the one of the leaders of this mob in rio oh honestly kurt is one of my one of my all-time favorite people, you know, like the beautiful thing about this movement is that you have these opportunities to meet these great minds and these great leaders and these great humans. And, um, you know, you, you, we have something very, um, beautifully in common, you know, success is, is pretty temporary. It's limited. Often you don't come first. And, um, within those experiences, they create all of these kind of layers to someone. And um, in Kurt, I just find a really kindred spirit. And uh, he's a warrior and I'm prepared to pretty much follow him into pretty much any battle. And so um, I feel like he feels a bit the same. So when I kind of – we started talking about this stuff and um, both of us really appreciating that we'd come from, you know – for me, late 80s, for him, probably a bit early 90s, um, Paralympic culture of a bit of a, a pretty collective spirit that over the time and for lots of good reasons, which is awesome, that athletes are kind of being a bit more spread out, being a bit more isolated with their own little networks. Um, they're able to access their own services and certain amount of funding, but it kind of has created a bit of a separation. And so every four years we all come together, but we don't know each other. And for both of us, that was just um, just too heartbreaking, you know, and, and feeling and knowing that these athletes were having these not such great experiences, that they were feeling kind of a bit burnt by the system, a bit left out, a bit – not engaged, um, 
was just like the most awful thing to hear because I want everyone to feel as as awesomely as I do about this movement. I haven't had always the greatest experiences and, you know, sometimes those moments have been so challenging that I have really struggled with myself and my place in the world. But I think there are opportunities to see how we can make it better for everyone and both of us feel very strongly about that. So the idea of the mob was very much about creating a family. You know, it's it's Aboriginal Australian English for family, you know, and um, I'd probably been watching a bit too much Sopranos and my whole Italian heritage reminded me as well of what that family feels like and how it's proud and fierce and and ready to be there for one another in good times and bad. And, and, and certainly that's the thing that's hard. You know, everyone loves a winner, but the minute that you're not, it's like you've just somehow contracted leprosy and everyone's afraid that it's going to be contagious. So it's when it's in times of need that that's really important as well. And both of us were very passionate about that. And, and there's so much more room to grow and move in that space. But um, I think we've we've made pretty good inroads so far. Yeah, I think you guys are great role models in that regard for future Paralympians in terms of showing that it is like a family and that there is it's not just support but it's pride and pride amongst teammates and that's that was the feeling amongst the mob and I was there as a staff member it was my only my fourth Paralympics but to see and feel that I think the younger generations of Paralympians are coming through with some really great guidance from that. Yeah that's the most exciting thing you know almost half if not more than half were first-time athletes under the age of 23. And for me, remembering or even thinking or even just, I don't know, even just entertaining the thought that this is their first experience and they think this is normal is so exciting for me. And I'm really uh, – I can't tell you how incredible it was to just watch athletes interacting and being supportive in the way that they could. You know, we all understand that certainly in, in the Paralympic um, – during a Paralympics, everyone is there to do their job, but not, no one is there to, you know, be social and all that stuff. But there is, when you're aware that you're part of something bigger and when there are opportunities to make personal and meaningful connections in a very brief time, but you know that's supported and encouraged, then that feels very different. And as you said, like for me, that was my sixth games and that's the most uh, – relaxed in if I can use that word I mean everyone is you know (laughs) riding the edge of the edge of the edge but doing it in a way that feels very relaxed and happy it actually felt happy and you know a lot of the work we did leading up to Rio was about gaining a lot of experiences from athletes of all sports and kind of gathering the little bits of gold that the various team uses to um you know improve experiences but um uh i guess add to the success of their athletes in the team and one of the big ones that we pulled from swimming was that you know a happy team is a successful team and we really ran with that so just those little things of just kind of that allow you to when you relax and then you tap into all the work that you've done then for me that's when that kind of magic happens but when you feel like you're under stress and there's all this pressure then you know you're what is it is it your amygdala or is it what yes. is that that just kind of, yeah, just goes, nah, can't handle it, shuts down and you can't access anything. So, you know, when you think about things like gratitude, that opens your heart and your mind to just this kind of relaxed, happy space as opposed to, you know, holy shit, this is this is the biggest moment of my life and if I don't do this, then I'm just a failure and I, you know, all of that stuff that just spirals, like it just 
created a really buoyant feeling within the team and um, I'm excited to see what Tokyo brings. Absolutely. And you mentioned this is your sixth Paralympics and you uh, kicked off your Paralympic campaigns as a wheelchair tennis player. Can you just take us back to, you mentioned right at the beginning of our chat too, that at the age of 13, you had your accident. Can you just sort of fill us in uh, what happened there and how you kick-started your Paralympic years? Yeah, well, I was a um, pretty active kid, um, just played a lot of sport. wasn't, uh, I guess, I played a lot of tennis and a lot of basketball. It certainly wasn't going to be something um, I was going to be doing for the rest of my life, but I really enjoyed it and I loved pushing myself and I'm fiercely competitive and um, just love to get amongst it. And um, I was at a swimming carnival where a retaining brick wall collapsed on um, my whole year seven and year eight classmates and um, it snapped my spine um, and pretty much um, – put me in hospital and in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. But the incredible thing at that moment was that I had some really good people around me and not just people who were really positive, but also people that were struggling and angry and um, grief stricken. And um, I, I experienced all these emotions and I was able just to really clearly see what we, what was useful and what wasn't useful. So that time was extraordinary um, on so many levels, but mostly because I met incredible people like Sandy Blythe and Brian McNichol, who were two Paralympians who were getting ready for Seoul. And um, just extraordinary men who were just smashing it. You know, they were in wheelchairs, but I I really didn't care about how or why they were in wheelchairs. I was just just intrigued as to what they were doing and how they were doing it and wanted to know more about that journey that they were on. And um, I was fortunate to have Sandy be my recreational officer while I was at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. And, you know, he he really, I don't know, he I think he must have seen a little bit of himself, just this feisty little punk of a kid who just wanted to get amongst it. And I was pretty adamant of just learning to be as independent as I could possibly be so that I could live as rich and fulfilling life as as Sandy was living. And, you know, he was a real motivator and a real mentor to me for so long. And I miss him every day. And, um, you know, I just, I feel very grateful because that, that Paralympic movement has just, I don't know, I've met so many people like that each and every day that I interact with, with his family. And, um, so yeah, so, you know, tennis was kind of one of the sports I played and I played basketball as well internationally, but I was just, um, probably a little bit better at tennis and a little bit, uh, I don't know, my nature's probably a little bit more inclined to individual sport. (laughs) Um, as much as I love a team sport, I I really, I can't handle letting other people down. (laughs) So it really was um, not the greatest thing for a 13 year old to, to be amongst that. But, um, but I did come across a lot of incredible inspirational women that showed me what's possible and, and just really, you know, weren't afraid to challenge me on a whole bunch of stuff, which I'm just so grateful for even to this day. And so they, the the guys you spoke about, they were wheelchair basketball players and uh, got you into wheelchair sports. And you mentioned there that, that tennis became your sport and you went on uh, to represent Australia and you won. Was it silver in at the Sydney Paralympics? Yeah, so um, Branka Popovac and I won silver in the doubles in Sydney and um, yeah, that was funny. Like I just kind of finished two and a half years of um, 
oh, just under three years of being number one and just kind of came to that Sydney Games with, you know, a lot of expectation and um, yeah, I was pretty fried. So Sydney was a really – was was really interesting but that silver was a doubles and um yeah atlanta was a, a bronze in singles uh, sorry athens was a bronze in singles the following games and you've uh, you've won plenty of other major tournaments on the the tennis tour what would you say on the te- all the tennis tours what would you say is one of your highlights what are you most proud of that sits in that uh trophy cabinet or in your memory bank from your sporting performances oh wow do you know what my my most memorable um doesn't really have a trophy which is really interesting like I've won lots of things I've had incredible experiences I've I've pushed myself to the absolute limits but my very favorite experience was actually um the first time the women were invited to play at Wimbledon so for years wheelchair tennis didn't exist at Wimbledon and um for then a really long time the men were uh, invited to play doubles for I don't know a good eight years before the women were and it took a long time but um my partner and I were one of the first teams to be invited and I just remember we'd won the first round and um it was only like still an exhibition so it was still only eight teams and so through to the finals we're on court four and I'm looking up at the all England club I'm in my whites I'm in a dress you don't often see me in a dress and I just had this extraordinary moment of feeling like honestly I'm the luckiest person alive and for a moment I just felt every single every single person that's ever contributed to my ability as an athlete and my my experience as a as a woman playing an elite sport in a wheelchair and took all of my doubles partners, all of my coaches, all of my trainers, all of my every person in my bubble and just felt how good is this? We are we have you know you've made it when you've been denied a place for so long and here you sit in front of it, looking at it, just just reveling in it and um that genuinely was the greatest experience of my tennis career I could understand why let alone the prestige of Wimbledon as a location and as an event and being able to participate in that but what a change for you to experience in the fact that women's sport in you being part of that shift how did you how did you feel before that shift actually occurred when you see the men getting invited back there year after year and you guys you girls sorry knowing that you're putting in the same amount of time the same amount of effort uh, you you're as dedicated para athletes as the guys are how do you, how did you women in the sport feel not being invited to that event yeah far out i mean for me this is the big question isn't it it's like i think lots has changed um, over certainly the last 30 years that i've been playing para sport and we've gone from the early beginnings of people feeling like you know it was a pretty patronizing pat on the back you know you'd be like a a human interest story even though you've just you know reached number one in the world (laughs) you're still a human interest story um and certainly we've moved from that like I feel like um there's a genuine appreciation or a greater appreciation and a greater appetite for elite sports people doing what they do whether that's with a disability or without and I think we've kind of moved very much into a space of appreciating and awareness and acceptance and acknowledgement and all of those things. But um, there are some little, there are some things that take a little bit longer and you need a little bit more effort and a little bit more patience and just keep fighting the good fight. So for us, um, 
you know, Wimbledon was that kind of last one. We'd, we'd been invited to every other um, Grand Slam and firmly cemented in all the other Grand Slams, certainly the women had, and everyone gets equal pay at all of it. But it took a really long time to, I guess, convince the the um, the Lawn Tennis Association out there that uh, not only is it great tennis to watch, but it's important tennis to watch and that there is so much that we contribute in that space. And it took a while, but that win was incredible you know that was 60 years of women working each and every day to um, be on that same level playing field and that moment weighed very heavily on me and I was very mindful of that and I was just I felt really privileged to be a part of that because I had seen that you know there's a lot of athletes in that space that hadn't been around hadn't seen all the all that all of those athletes had put towards making sure that our experience was as great as it is. And I think that's a big part of this mob stuff is really appreciating the history and the the people that have gone before us and how we only have this experience because so many people have worked so hard so that we can enjoy um, this time. It's, it's, it was pretty, it was pretty mind blowing. That's, that's what's, so great about having leaders like yourself uh, in the the Paralympic space because it's not that the younger generations uh, don't care or are greedy or anything like that. It's just that they're not aware of it. And to be honest, I didn't understand. I didn't know that history that you were one of the first, or you know, the first lot of females that were allowed into such a major competition. So, for I think history is really important for people and younger athletes to get a feel for first firsthand to understand where this establishment and where this growth and where this pride has come from. Yeah, absolutely. And also how they can contribute to that legacy. You know, like it's really, I think when you're an athlete and you're kind of riding that edge of the edge and the tip of that wave, it's really easy to feel like that's just going to go on forever. But um, it doesn't and you don't often get to choose how it ends and you and rarely do you feel really fulfilled by it. Like you often, there's so many stories of athletes coming away um, not feeling so great about that. And um, so being mindful that that time is a short-lived time and your ability to contribute to that broader legacy is a really important thing for you to consider and how we kind of, I guess, um, be that guiding light and set that example for what a successful, supportive, respectful Paralympian looks like for future generations. I think that is super important for each and every one of us. Now, you've mentioned mindful a few times and for those people that have spent a bit of time with you, your language is uh, unique and infectious and I want to dive into that. So, you are a doctor of Chinese medicine. Correct. And how did that come about and what what philosophies from that do you take into your everyday life? Let's dig deep into this. Yeah, wow. Well... Gosh, that's such a great question because really, you know, it starts growing up in a Roman Catholic household, going to Catholic school and secondary school and being really open to hearing about the broader questions of what what is meaningful, what is the point of life, what is, what is the purpose, you know. Um, and those things I've always thought about, like, I don't know why I was a pretty weird kid. And, you know, I wanted to be a doctor when I was growing up, I wanted to be a surgeon, and I wanted my contribution to the planet to be a meaningful one. And, um, and certainly, um, you know, as I grew older, and certainly with my accident, it kind of 
those questions came into, I guess, sharper focus. And um, and I just read lots and, and I, I was really broad with my reading. And though, even though I had a, you know, a growing up school period and home life period in a very Catholic kind of background, I was really um, drawn to Eastern philosophy and just lots of philosophy, actually. I read lots of stuff. And it was, I guess, all that Eastern philosophy that really resonated with me. And um, I was able to – it was one of those things that I was able to instantly use in my day-to-day and um, it was just reliable. Like I just could always rely on that. And and certainly kind of Taoist, Buddhist um, thought allowed me to consider – how the world works, what is real, what is not real, what is what is what is a meaningful existence, and how can I explore that as an athlete, where it seems very, um, you know, selfish and self-centered, and um, you know, just very focused. Um, and so, you know, when you start exploring that stuff, Chinese medicine is obviously a part of it. You know, Eastern philosophy, if you includes all of these things, it's Chinese medicine, acupuncture, how energy works in the body, how you can utilize the energy within you, and um, and how that connects to the to the broader energy of the entire universe and that we're just it's mind body spirit stuff and when you kind of connect all three of those things then you're living really mindfully and and meaningfully and um when I when I really ran the edge of that stuff and I was taking that on to tennis courts that really allowed me a whole other level of experience of my body and this time that I have this body and and what I'm going to do with it and how I'm going to use it for the benefit of myself and others and and certainly, you know, having my accident meant I couldn't perform surgery on anyone anymore, but um, it asked me to think about how then can I, you know, um, be of benefit to others. And I did a psych degree first up, and so I did a lot of work with young people in that space, but certainly having that doctor of Chinese medicine has allowed me to um, have a whole pile of other tools to just assist people to, you know, being the best versions of themselves as they, as they reach for that. Do you feel... Being an elite athlete and also having this uh, this Eastern philosophy mindset, do you feel that it's contradictory to high-performance sports sometimes the way of your mindset or do you think it's actually a missing link? Oh, for me, it's done nothing but contribute in incredible ways. I mean, um, you know, from just practices on meditation, that's just gold, you know, because um, – as, as I've already mentioned, there's so much you can't control. Like you can't, regardless of the time and effort you put in and how much technical, tactical, physical work you do on yourself, most people at your elite level are doing exactly the same thing. And so for me, how well you are able to um, manage your mind and manage how you then respond to various circumstances in your own mind is is the real clincher. I think people who are able to do that well are able to kind of navigate everything else that gets thrown at them um, in probably the most, I don't know, ideal, perfect, you know, not those words are pretty stupid when you, I guess you're trying to talk about this stuff, but, um, you know, the most effective way, like for me, that's effective use of, of my time and my energy. And, and certainly um, as someone with a disability, that is, my disability is constantly changing. I'm always experiencing varying degrees of pain and um, just, things that are just unpredictable 
but I know that even in the worst times and, and the worst things that I've had to manage, I've been able just to rely on really simple things like being mindful of my breath that has actually allowed me to just, you know, take a bit of stock, find a bit of common ground, find a bit of balance, find a bit of um, control actually and that's been nothing but useful as, a, as an elite athlete. I think you're absolutely right and you hear these days that people in high performance sport in a lot of able-bodied sports of those who are, speak out and publicly in the media and uh, there's a few NBA stars also that are speaking out about it a bit more now around what you mentioned of meditation and I think you know that's just one small example of a practice of being able to tap into your inner self and working on your inner self and I can understand how that mind body spirit connection of yours has worked wonders for you in the sporting field oh, I, I'm not quite sure where I'd be without it you know because it's really it's challenging you're on the road so much you're you're being pushed on every single level and that's what I love about sport it it provides you what well, provides me with the arena to meet myself and I don't always like what I see but it allows me the opportunity to see it and then be able to work on it and um, that's a real gift because you don't often get that experience in your day-to-day and and your comfortable surrounds where you're trying to you know micromanage all of these little things around you so that everything is a bit easy and a bit comfortable but in in that kind of context of an elite sporting context you don't you don't have the luxury of that but for me it provides the greatest learning and you know meditation isn't a cop-out you know it's not it's not relaxing actually it takes incredible (laughs) work and but when you're prepared to put the work in um Wow, it opens a pile of doors that are just uh, beyond beyond useful. And back to what the mindful word that you use, and I think you know meditation and mindfulness can have uh, mixed connotations from people, and they create their own perception around it when they don't actually understand. But I like to explain it to people in regards to the fact that we we actually create our own mindsets, whether that's our mindset of abundance uh, or mindset of gratitude or whether we have a mindset of fear or envy. Whatever the mindset is within us, we actually create it. So the more that we know about our internal workings and the more that we can tap into our internal workings, the better we are in every single aspect of our life. Oh, 100%. You know, Buddhism talks about them being just these temporary states of delusion, you know, like when you're able to um, have enough self-awareness and that's what you need as an athlete to be able to see these kind of comings and goings of these various states, then you're able to actually work out what you do with that. And it's, you know, for me, it's not so much about stopping all of this stuff, being able to just like massively control all these bad things, all these good things, but kind of seeing them all as kind of the same thing that comes in and out. And um, and certainly from a Buddhist point of view, being able to actually absorb that into the, the actual emptiness of, of what is truly happening is next level awesomeness. But yeah, we have we have a great deal more control than we think we do. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to when you had your accident at 13 and your life completely changed forever and it, it's unbelievable to think that a brick wall fell on you and all of your classmates and to think about you as a 13-year-old kid in hospital, 
do you remember, I know it was a long time ago, but maybe it's something you've reflected on, on, on how your mindset was in those initial periods when you were first exposed to the fact that you'd be in a wheelchair now and that life had changed dramatically forever? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was pretty, um, I was pretty alert to all of it. I, and, you know, I'm sure as lots of people know, when those big times happen, you're able to go back to them pretty quickly, instantly, and um, it's a very cute memory. And so for me, certainly that accident, um, it's a funny and a strange thing because there was so much going on within that day that was asking me not to be there, like lots of opportunities to not be there. And um, and yet I still found myself in this space and um, of, you know, 180 athletes, I was the only one with any sort of permanent injury. I mean, lots of kids um, have had a lot of mental scarring as a result of that. It totally ripped through a whole community and still, you know, there's still people within that community that are struggling with something that happened, you know, 30 years ago. But um, for me, when that brick wall fell on me, it was a very um, instant impact. Like I instantly, my legs just gave way under me. I was sitting down and um, just was really aware that this this is a very big change. <laughs> um, and knew enough because I was a total geek and wanting to be a doctor that um, either this brick wall had totally severed my spine or I was in spinal shock, which just seems like a weird geeky thing for a 13-year-old to think that. But genuinely, when like the um, the ambos came and, and they had laid me down, that was my first question is, you know, do you think this is permanent or just, you know, am I just been in spinal shock? And they're just looking at me like, you're a freak. What, wow. <laughs> that was your first question you? to them. Yeah, it was my first question. And my second was um, because um, I guess a lot of adrenaline was happening. I, I wasn't actually in any pain. Like for me, the first thing was just checking, you know, what am I all right? Can I – do I know who I am? Do I know where I am? Like just those stupid things that you run through when something happens. And all I could hear around me was um, like a lot of um, pain, turmoil. There was a lot of just – um, confusion. People were running around everywhere. And even though I was lying down and couldn't necessarily see it, I could hear it and felt it and just thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, there was one person in particular who was clearly struggling. I thought, oh man, I, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not her. You know, that is so bad. She had a broken wrist, but um, it was just like, it just, <laughs> it was just so overwhelming with this cacophony of sound. And so from straight up, I was like, I'm all right. I actually knew I was all right. And even if this was a temporary or permanent thing, I was happy to deal with whatever came. And that was my very first thought. So when they took me to hospital and um, they had those, they kind of did the x-rays um, pretty straight up. You could see that uh, one part of my spine went one way and one went the other way. And um, I knew that that meant, I knew what that meant. Like when they actually showed me that, I knew exactly what that meant. So by the time, you know, the surgeon had actually spoken to my mum and dad and spoken to me and told me, you know, you, you know you're never going to walk again, I actually already knew that. So my concern was for my parents who were just, you know, losing losing their minds and I just I really I felt for them that that four months of me being in hospital was was a really challenging one for them and my brother and um yeah there was hard times for those guys but you know for me I was just I just knew what I needed to do and I, I was um 
very much feeling and, and aware of all the emotions that were around me and I just took what was useful and I just ditched the rest. And I've just been really um, – I'm really glad for those little bits of early learning. They've, I've, I've always kind of drawn on them and uh, they, they just keep kind of reoccurring throughout my life. That's pretty amazing because it sounds like acceptance was a, a major thing that you took on very early and you just said then that you filtered through with what was helpful for you to think about and to feel emotionally and you took on the, the helpful thoughts and feelings and you learned to dismiss the, the unhelpful thoughts and feelings and these are very powerful skills that – you know, we can learn through help from the amazing psychology networks, from uh, any of the the Eastern philosophies that you might have learned. And I know you've studied neurolinguistic programming. I know that there's some uh, some very uh, powerful methods within that. But it sounds like it was almost natural to you. So I can understand now why you've followed the the paths that you have around the Chinese medicine and the NLP and the psychology degree also that you studied. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know. When I hear myself say that, I just think, what a freak. But, you know, I grew up in a in a household that was pretty pragmatic and very logical. My dad was like a um, – he um, was a professor of mechanical engineering at one of the unis here. And it was a very um, – the very, you know, the Italian family, really emotional and passionate, but also very logical and pragmatic. And so I guess there, there was some things that I kind of just grew up already doing and just felt very like common to do. I never really thought about that. And certainly as a young athlete, I'd be thinking about those things as well. But certainly um, that accident, I don't know, brought all of it into the sharpest focus. And um I just I didn't think twice about that. I didn't even think, oh, what am I thinking here, and how is this being useful? It was just it just it just was there, and I'm just really fortunate that I've had a lot of people um, not fight that. You know, like even in in hospital when I was 13, the the um, uh, the children's ward, they wanted to take me up to the children's ward because the rehab ward, the spinal rehab, um, you had to be 16 years or over to actually go into the spinal rehab ward. And, um, you know, I just remember kind of going, the first time I could get into my wheelchair after a month of lying down, I, I went and checked out this children's ward and I was just mortified. <laughs> I'm just like, there's no way you're taking me here. Like I'm not gonna learn anything. I don't I'm not gonna learn how to be independent and that's gonna impact me for the rest of my life. And I was just really, really aware of that. And thankfully I had people like Sandy who were able to talk to my parents and I had parents who also appreciated that um that thing in me needed to be supported and nurtured and encouraged and I was just really lucky to have people that went this this ticks onto that and and we support that rather than be really fearful because you know didn't tick the boxes that hospitals should tick and I was just really lucky that I had just people that thought a big picture and were prepared to accept me and my acceptance for things and that I wanted to actually grow from that experience and I wanted to use the time I had in there to actually smash it out as best as I could and I I was just can't tell you how lucky I was. That's an amazing uh, mindset right there from a young age is to learn how to grow from that experience. I know it's weird, isn't it? But, you know, I think we all do it every day and whether we kind of 
give ourselves um, acknowledgement in that. Like that's probably one thing. Like I, I think most people get to do that. Most people have challenging circumstances in their life each and every day. Like you can look at me and you can say, oh, you're in a wheelchair and, and that's the biggest thing you've had to deal with. But it kind of isn't actually. Like I had less issues dealing with that moment than I have lots of other things that have happened throughout my life. And and that's the thing. Challenges come and people um, experience incredible amounts of suffering. But you know, people work through this stuff each and every day. And for me, the key is acceptance and, um, and being, I guess, patient and, and joyful in that acceptance. They're, they're not easy things to do at all. And if you're able to actually work with that and through that, then that's usually the light at the end of the tunnel. What's next for Denny DeToro? Where are your visions? Oh, wow. Well, um, we've just... Um, We've just started – well, we have actually. Um, we've started the Athlete Commission. So certainly as an extension of a lot of the mob stuff, it's creating opportunities for athletes to, um, yeah, just be able to control what this Paralympic space looks like, um, how it affects us, how we can benefit, how we can be of benefit, how we can create just the greatest experience for all of our people coming through um, and support all of our alumni that have, have actually – contributed so much um so that commission is off the ground um certainly i'm doing a lot of forum based stuff where we're exploring a lot of topics that um our athletes are experiencing and and finding ways to come together with that kind of shared knowledge and for that to um i guess uh create some uh i don't know feedback so that those strategies can be implemented within the national sporting associations and the apc and the asc and we're hoping that that athlete voice can kind of resonate and start really um, impacting how these services are provided. But on that space, lots is going on. Um, I'm actually now a table tennis player, which is hilarious because I'm pretty average. But um, every day I work to get better at a sport that um, I have to almost unlearn 30 years of tennis learning in order to become this ping pong guru. Um, so that's a daily daily learning, which is heaps fun. And then, you know, I'm in clinic a day a week um, working with an incredible mentor who was one of my professors. And that's always an incredible experience to watch people be really brave to want to actually work on themselves and, um, and, and work towards their own healing. That is an incredible privileged space to be in. And is that in the Chinese medicine space with your mentor that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I was I was really fortunate to while I was actually um, doing my degree that one of my professors um, asked me to come work with her and for her, and I've just kind of been in that clinic space ever since. And just oh, that's she's amazing. I just I've I've asked for good teachers. You know, one of the things that I put out to the universe a long time ago was to always have good teachers around me, and um, she's certainly one of them. It's unbelievably powerful and important for all of us on our journeys to find great mentors, isn't it? I do quite a lot of presentations and one of them purely on mentoring because I think it's actually a bit of a – people don't understand how to tap into it and you're you're lucky to have a physical mentor and I'm lucky to have some amazing physical mentors in my life but we can also have mentors that we don't have to actually, you know, physically be able to spend time with but still learn their abundance of value that they have to offer. Oh, absolutely. I think that's massive, you know, and I think it's the biggest untapped area, certainly in that Paralympic space anyway, is like there are so many people with incredible experiences, knowledge, wisdom, um, 
you know, you don't need to even spend any time to be influenced by people. And I'm fortunate that I've had lots of people that I've spent lots of time with, but there are, there are big mentors in my life that I've never met, <laughs> like that I learn from on a daily basis and not just because of um, the great things they're doing, but also watching people have those challenges and how they respond to that. That's learning. Like that's a certain type of mentorship for me in a way. It's like, how do you take every opportunity and learn something from that? And how do you then um, use that to make the world a better place? And for me, that's really the thing is how do I make sure I just leave every opportunity better than I found it? And, and I draw a lot on the people around me for a lot of that inspiration and motivation and reminder that this stuff is important and that it matters and that you can't underestimate the value you have in someone else's life, whether they've met you or not. Like it's important to know that, people watch and people care and people see and feel and that it has an impact. Absolutely, definitely. And I, I can hear you there with, uh, I, I often say to people that one of the strongest mentors in my life over the last couple of years that's taught me so much uh, holistically is uh, a guy called Lewis Howes who has a podcast and he doesn't even know that I exist, <laughs> but I, I consider him as one of the biggest mentors in my life over the last right. couple of years. <laughs> that's exactly right. Now, Denny, we'll wrap things up shortly, um, but I'm all about action and I would love to know what's your advice on what specific action our listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities? Wow. Um, Action. For me, action is really about, you know, that awareness that this is very temporary and when you have that awareness that it's temporary and you commit to making every moment count and doing that in as meaningful way as possible, then it provides that opportunity to create the greatest experiences around you. That doesn't mean you're not going to have challenges or you're not going to have suffering, but that that journey through that is is going to be an incredible, incredible journey. And that, you know, for me, that action really is, for me that I look to, is leaving every situation better than I found it, whether that's a conversation with someone, whether that's a difficult scenario that feels very uncomfortable or whether that's, you know, using a wheelchair access toilet that someone's just pissed all over, you know, it's just like making every place that I go better than I found it. And when I do that action, that creates really powerful positive feelings that reminds me of how grateful I am for this life experience and it reminds me of of why it's really important to reach for that each and every day. Brilliant. I love it. Now, before we dive into the fast five questions, I uh, like to give all of my guests a little gift and we're talking over Skype here. You're actually the first person on the podcast that we've done it over Skype. We did try and communicate to meet up, but I'll be heading overseas, so that didn't happen in person, but... I did send you the, the magic headphones for the sound quality and with that was a, uh, a life tea and a thank you card. So I wanted to, to give you that to thank you for uh, coming on to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Robert. That really made my day, by the way. Like, how lovely, you know, in, in an age where few people write anything, it was just so lovely to actually receive this beautiful handwritten card. And I, I really appreciate how much you care about this space and how much you want to contribute to so many people in this space. And 
we're just all really lucky to have you and and your love and your passion. So thank you so much for the invite. Oh, thank you. And I'm glad you could understand my handwriting because I don't do it very often. That's so. ah, beautiful. <laughs> now, two-part question. I know you're not very active in the uh, social media world and the online world, but if if people want to sort of reach out to you to learn more from uh, everything that you have to offer, where can they find you? And also, how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Oh, bless you. Yeah, I don't actually exist socially at all. <laughs> so, if you want to find me, usually if you hang around um, Brunswick or Fitzroy, um, <laughs> you'll probably find me on the street actually. So, um, I always encourage uh, actual face-to-face communication. In fact, it's one of probably the weirdest things about me is that if I'm actually on the street, I will actively try and make people look me in the eye like um, – one, it kind of stops them just kind of gawking at a wheelchair and deciding, making their own judgments, and it actually forces them to connect with a person. Um, but I love those conversations that happen on the street just randomly. So um, I would say just, you know, wander around streets of Melbourne looking for me. That's probably the best way to connect <laughs> to me. Um, unfortunately, that's probably the only way. <laughs> um if there's and, any burning desires from anyone listening to get in yeah. touch with uh, with you, Denny, I'm sure they can reach out to me and we can make something happen. <laughs> always, always. Or pretty much any Japanese restaurant around town will probably have me one or two days a week. So, um, <laughs> could always just scope them out. There's enough great ones around. And so, how can we help you on your journey? Oh, man. Do you know, this is helping. When, when, we, when we talk about this stuff and when we all acknowledge how powerful this stuff is, um, I think that creates a really wonderful community and environment that just can't help but, um, but spread, you know. It's, it's really easy to kind of, whether you're an athlete or just any human being, actually feel like you're just on your own dealing with this by yourself and it's really easy to feel pretty hopeless and helpless. And I know that I have felt times like that and when I've felt times like that, that has been um, an incredibly desperate place in my mind and a really, really scary place in my mind actually. And so when you know that people are having these conversations and people are genuinely looking to reach out and connect and remind one another of, of the importance and the, of, of this time on this planet, but also the importance of that connectivity amongst each other, then that's just so powerful. So I guess the way that you can help me is by just sharing that on, you know, when you see someone say hi, like you don't necessarily need to ask them how they're going, but even just acknowledge another person and, you know, walking down the street, actually put your phone away and just look at people. <laughs> One out of safety for not crossing the road, but two, just acknowledging that you have a human existence and that we all do. And that when we connect in that very pure place, then, you know, you can't imagine um, the good that is shared in that moment. Presence is power. Indeed. <laughs> All right, the fast five questions. So don't give yourself too much time to think about these. We're just hey. whatever rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Sweating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's one habit you wish you could change? Oh, um, my impatience. What makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energized? Oh, great positive people in my world. Brilliant. Have you ever washed a dog? No. 
Oh, I'm a yeah. cat person. I've washed cats, and that was like brutal. That would never happen again. But uh, never washed a dog. No. There you go. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Dare to do greatly. Mm. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Oh, just my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, my own teeth is one thing. But um, you know, look honestly. I have incredible love and support and without that, I, I'm not quite sure where I'd be. So I'm grateful for every single person that loves and cares for me and there's a few. Danny DeToro, you're a legend. You're a very humble, present, beautiful soul and an amazing role model for all the current and future Paralympians. Keep shining your light, woman. Oh, bless you. Takes one to know one. And thank you for just being your own beautiful beacon of light for the rest of us. Thank you. Ah, it's just blissful listening to that woman. Thanks again to Denny for being one of the many amazing women I've been lucky enough to share my journey with. And we have plenty more inspirational and powerful women in upcoming episodes. As you heard, Denny is not out there in the social media world, but if you do want to reach out to her, then please tag myself and Life on social media and I'll pass on your message. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E-F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at yourlifeofimpact.com. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.